Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is a little out of the ordinary, but first, some background. About a month ago, my wife and I decided to buy a new car. My Honda Odyssey had 95,000 miles on it. It was nine years old. It needed a lot of work. And rather than put more money in the car, we decided to replace it. My wife and I looked at the Toyota Sienna and the Honda Odyssey. We came very close to buying the Toyota, but ultimately, we liked the Honda's eight-seat option a little better than the Toyota's. And We went with the Honda. So I did some research on pricing. I visited a nearby dealer. He came down a little off the list price, but not much. And then I called a couple of dealers a little farther away and asked for their best price, you know, their internet price, their no-haggle price. And based on those prices, which were dramatically lower than what the dealer had come back to me with as the price of the car, my wife and I drove about 35 minutes from our house to get the Odyssey we wanted at Oarsman Honda of Laurel in Maryland. I won't give you all the details, but it turned out the no-haggle price we'd been told over the phone didn't really include everything. The real price was higher. There were a bunch of extras, pinstriping, wheel locks, mud flaps. Raised the price by over $800. There was a destination charge of over $600 that the salesperson hadn't mentioned over the phone when I said, what's the full price? I was pretty upset. I'd asked the salesperson whether his no-haggle price included everything, and he said yes. Were there any other charges, I asked? No, just tags and tax, but he lied to me. The dealer extras and the destination charge, about $1,500. I didn't know what upset me more, the idea of paying for mud flaps and pinstriping and wheel locks that I didn't really want or the fact that I'd been lied to. So I stood up to leave. My salesperson went and got a manager who explained to me that pinstriping and mud flaps were costly. He could come down from the 835 but not below his cost. Would I accept 500 I said no. I'm either paying zero or I'm out of here. I don't care what your costs are. Uh, you know, he's really talking to the wrong guy, an economist. I know about supply and demand and costs aren't some aren't always going to determine the price. And I didn't really know what his costs were. So I said, no, that's it. Uh, you lied to me. I'm out of here. Uh, so he tried 400. He tried to come down and I stood up to leave again. And I got a little closer to the door this time. And the manager went and got the manager's boss, the sales manager for the whole dealership. And that man is my guest today, Steve Cole. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, our topic for today is the pricing of cars, new cars, and it fascinates me. I want to start by recreating what happened when Steve took me into his office. He was very empathetic, which is, of course, part of his job. And he looked, and I'm sure he read my face and saw I was kind of furious, uh, shot, exhausted. Uh, I told him, and he said, well, what's wrong? I said, well, I was lied to. Uh, I'm not happy, and I doubt that you can make me happy. And so Steve, in an interesting strategic maneuver in, in the sales business, uh, immediately went into an explanation. I didn't tell him I was an economist, by the way, but he immediately went into an explanation of how he had set his, quote, lowest price. So, Steve, what did you tell me then? Well, I told you that what I had done is take the invoice price, which is obviously available anywhere on the Internet, and taking away the dealer cash that Honda is currently offering on the vehicle, which happened to be $2,000. Mm-hmm. 
took away from that, which is holdback. And if uh, anyone's not interested, or uh, explain, about what, explain what that is. is. Holdback is a amount of money that the manufacturer pays the dealership when they sell a car. Uh, on Hondas, it's two percent. And then after subtracting that, I took an additional five hundred dollars to come to a price that, in essence, is really five hundred dollars below net, 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 net. After everything is taken out from the manufacturer, what we get back. I use that as my truly starting point for negotiating uh, with all consumers. And so, I, I think a lot of people have in mind it's a strange idea that you just pay invoice plus a little bit more. But of course, you were way way below invoice, you were uh, taking account of the fact that Honda was going to compensate you $2,000 for selling that car, and it, I had read or been told it was actually 1000 but you were straight with me and told me it was 2000 Then you took off the 2%, and then you took off another 500 Why did you do that? I asked you that at the time. Why did you do that? It's a very competitive market out there. Within our dealership right here, you can drive about 90 minutes and hit 36 different Honda dealerships in the area. It's such a competitive market that if you're trying to hold on to every last penny up front, you're not going to get the business. And we're in a we're in a market in a business that it is all about the traffic that can be generated at the store. How many people get a chance to come in and talk to us and give us an opportunity to try to earn their business. And if I would just go what is traditional out there, which is, you know, invoice or even invoice minus the dealer cash and just try to hold on to the holdback, there's going to be another dealer out there who's going to be more aggressive with their pricing and will probably more than likely get your business as opposed to us even having the opportunity. But why that extra 500 it seemed like you were taking a loss. What was going to keep you uh, profitable with throwing that in? Well, with the Honda system of selling cars, Honda has what's called a turn-and-earn system. You sell a Honda, you get another Honda to replace it. Right now, we're in the time of the season where every 08 we're selling is really at this point going against our 09 inventory. So if I move or we sell 20 Odysseys this month, more than likely I'm going to be getting 20 Odysseys back, but they're going to be the 09 Odysseys. And so it's a big deal for any dealership is to hold on to their inventory and have a have an inventory that's adequate enough that anyone can walk off the street, walk into the dealership, and find a car that they like. So you viewed that five hundred dollars as an investment in a, a a higher level of profit on that 09. Sure, absolutely. There's no question about that. So then, so Steve told me that I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, the two percent, especially in the two thousand dollars and the five hundred, which seemed true since I knew that invoice price from my um, from my reading. And then he said he'd throw in all the options that I hadn't been told about at no charge, and I thought that was very very nice. But there was still that destination charge of six hundred something. And um, I wasn't very happy about that. And then Steve gave me something else. He said, well, what would we tell you we'd pay you for your trade-in? And the trade-in, this was the 1999 Honda Odyssey. Uh, the salesperson had gotten me a price of $1,800. Well, I had a price from CarMax, which buys used cars, for 3000 So I wasn't going to take the 1800 for the trade-in. I was going to have to hassle and go to CarMax to trade it in. And worse than that, CarMax's offer had expired the day before. I wasn't sure I was going to get the 3000 And Steve called his used car dealer and said, uh, can we get? Can we give him 3200 which was really kind of – I got a kick out of that. And the used car uh, part of his dealership said, no, and how about 3000 And so we got to the CarMax 
price, and I, then I was feeling a little bit better. So I had to decide what to do. Should I swallow my pride at being lied to and deceived to get out to the dealer and just take the deal? Uh, it seemed like a pretty good deal. It was way below invoice. It was hundreds, if not thousands, and better than the deal I had when I'd almost walked out of 20 minutes before. I'd knocked 800 and something off the price of these extras. I'd up my trade in by 1200. The destination charge still kind of bugged me, but Steve said, yeah, you can't, there's no way we can deal with that. Every dealer is going to deal that way. And I thought, well, I don't know. Is that true? I, I said to him, I said, you know, I just have, what, what's frustrating about this business is I have no way of knowing whether that's true without investing a lot more time, obviously. I suppose there's some way I could find out if I could negotiate a better price somewhere else. But, uh, you know, I'd been around, I spent a lot of time looking at cars. I was kind of sick of it. I wanted to go home. I wanted to bring my wife a new car, and I was pretty sure I'd have trouble getting that lower price elsewhere. I wanted to believe that I couldn't, so uh, I thought Steve would play pretty fair with me. At least it felt that way. But before I could say yes, I asked Steve the question I've always wanted to ask, and uh, this is where I really want to start this this interview. I said, I don't get your business. I don't understand how this market works. I'm about to spend $25,000 plus for a new car. Other than buying a new a house, buying a new car is by far the largest pur- purchase we make, and I should walk out of here ecstatic. I should walk out of here exhilarated that I've bought a car I love, and I've gotten a good deal. But I feel like I've gone 10 rounds with Muhammad Ali. I'm bitter. I feel used and a bit degraded, and I suspect we have a few listeners out there who feel the same way about the new car buying process. They just find it extremely frustrating. Why isn't there a dealer out there who really keeps the new haggle, the no haggle promise, and who says, come to my dealership, this is the price you're going to pay, you're never going to pay more than this, uh, excuse me, never going to find a lower price, it's posted, we keep our word, and you'll feel great. Why don't you do that? Steve, what's the answer? Why don't more dealers, yourself included, just have the lowest price possible and just get a lot of volume? Well, I think it's driven predominantly by the consumers out there. Uh, the more the consumers do the research, the more likely that a dealership is going to end up going in that direction. Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, depending on which side of the fence you're on, a lot of consumers still walk into car dealerships very unprepared for the experience you're about ready to encounter. And when they walk in there and they haven't done their research, they don't know what a fair value for the vehicle they're purchasing or a fair value for the car they're trading in and they haven't done that research, there's a chance or an opportunity for the dealership to make a substantial greater profit than on somebody who's done their research and looked on the internet. And as long as the as long as the public is going to continue operating under operating without the knowledge of what they're walking into I believe that there's going to be car dealerships out there that are not going to have one straight pricing out there until the public and the consumers demand that's the way it's going to go. Now, I really would like to know about that destination charge. Uh, when I when I asked when I asked Steve if uh, he'd like to do an interview, uh, he said yes, which I thought was kind of cool. And I asked him whether he wanted to do it anonymously as Mister X. Or as uh, Orsman Honda of Laurel's sales manager, and he said he'd like to do it as the latter if his uh, boss said fine, and his boss did say fine. So we're doing this uh, uh, out in the open. And I had an interesting question whether I should uh, 
which would be more interesting as an interview, an interview where, where Steve is is anonymous and, and therefore free to speak the truth, or an interview where he's maybe out in the open, but you never know whether he's telling the truth or not. On the other hand, by saying who he is and where he's from, he's got some accountability. So we went with the open, uh, and I think Steve's done a pretty good job so far. So here's a big test, Steve. Uh, that destination charge, uh, did I lose an opportunity there, or did I just, you know, at a minimum, I got a podcast out of it, I figured. So, you know, when I, when I was trying to feel good walking out, I thought, thought well, you know, as long as he answers the phone on Tuesday, we'll, we'll get the podcast. Was there a little more room there? I assume there was, by definition. There had to be some more room. I would say, realistically, there was probably maybe $100, $200 more that would have possibly been taken off. As it was, just to let you and your listeners know, as far as the dealership was concerned, after I take out every possible incentive that the manufacturer gives us back, which is the hold back and the dealer cash and everything like that, it ended up being a $365 net-net loss for the dealership. And you might have taken even – you're saying you might have taken an even bigger loss because it was worth it to get that 09 allocation. It was worth it to get the 09 allocation. It was also worth it um, for the peace of mind that you know you have a customer walking out that's not going to go out there and say a lot of bad things about your dealership. Ten years ago when somebody had a bad experience, the rule of thumb was they'd tell ten people that they had a bad experience. Well, now if someone has a bad experience, they're telling 10 million people. It's the, it's the power of the Internet now yeah, that the, too, everybody has an opportunity to voice their, their thoughts, their opinions um, to everyone, and there's a forum for people to read it. So nowadays, you can't, you can't afford the possibility of letting the customer walk out of here in such a frustrated mode of thinking that he's going to feel that he's got to take it to the next level which is broadcast his sentiments to everyone that possibly can read what's out there on the internet right now. So, so it becomes a it becomes a almost a uh, guessing game at what point do I ha- do I have to say no to somebody that is asking for more than I'm really allowed to give and at what point do I sit there and say okay I'm going to take a loss today on this car but the upside is uh, I am going to be getting an 09 to replace it and the upside is I'm going to get a customer that I feel is honestly going to give me some good word of mouth to his friends and relatives and family and possibly get more business down the future from it. So let's go back to the source of this variation, one source. I, I want to suggest another one in a minute, but let's start off with the most obvious one, which is, as you point out, if customers walk in uninformed, uh, they're going to get taken advantage of and or at least pay a higher price, on whether you would call it taken advantage of. They're going to pay closer to the list price than than I did. Um how has that changed? How long have you been a sales manager, and what have you seen happen in your business as information has become more widely available and used? I've been a sales manager for the Honda world for about seven years. And from the point I first got in, the average profit on a new car, all said and done, was about 900 to to $1,000 on the price of the car itself. Over the last four or five years, just with the the Internet taking off even more and more than what it has been in the past and more people having access to quick T1 lines and uh, dial-up modems that are no longer there where your information is accessible immediately, it's taken the price of the vehicles and driven the average profit down to where it's probably around five to $600 per car right now. 
And what percentage of your customers do you think come in, quote, well-prepared versus just happy to pay the price on the, t- on the sticker? Well, there's a couple different statistics out there. Honda does their own survey where they provide information on a yearly basis to the dealerships. And their last study said about 80 to 85% of Honda customers have done some type of research on the Internet before they walk in. So it's a large figure right there, but that still means you're having 10 to 15 percent of the buyers that are walking in uninformed, um, and I wouldn't say they're going to be walking in and taking advantage of. Uh, you're you're talking about a business that you know every business in America was built upon, and that was the concept of the right to earn a fair profit. I guess you could have an argument on what's a fair profit on an average of a twenty thousand dollar car. But I would sit there and say, you know, we go in every day to Starbucks and we're probably paying three to four hundred percent profit on a cup of coffee. Sure, it's a much lower item, so we don't relate the cost involved with that. But we go into a car dealership and an average car dealership right now, the average profit's only about probably two to three percent. Yeah, that's probably actually what it is at Starbucks too, but it, it, the raw materials are, are, are very small relative to the sales price. Absolutely. Um, but you're right, the, the quote markup is very noticeable in the car market, especially because people have, one's the size of it, as you point out. The other is the fact that people do pay a very different price for the same car, unlike Starbucks. Absolutely. So so 85% of the people have done some, some internet research, but of course the quality of that varies dramatically. I assume uh, many of those folks have done very little. Other people have done probably, as you suggested when we talked the other day, a little too much. There are probably some people who come in expecting a price they're not going to get. There is, the Internet's a, a remarkable tool if people realize it's just that, it is a tool. It is not something just because you read something on the Internet makes it valid or, or real. It is someone expressing their opinion or their perception of what just happened. A great example of that is if you walk into a dealership and you buy a car and you trade a car in, and if I use you as an example, if your car was really worth 3000 and we gave you 1800 for it, and you said, okay, that's great, let me take that, um, and I took another $1,000 off the price of our car, you would get on there and advertise that you just bought or let everyone know that you just bought an right. Odyssey for roughly $4,000 below right. invoice on it. Well, the reality is that we were... It's a package deal. It was a package deal, and what you paid for the car didn't take into account what your used car, your value of your used car was. So if you went on there and just said, this is what I paid for my new Odyssey, and someone else read that, would they have an accurate description of what just happened? Or would they walk into another dealership saying, well, I know somebody that paid this much for the car, and set up a very negative experience for them based upon something you had written that was your perception of what had happened? Yeah, no, that's one of the other frustrations of the whole experience is that the price is more complicated because of that trade-in. Um, I always, as a new car buyer, almost always, in this case, I had the CarMax uh, deal as a backup, but I almost always say, I don't have a trade-in. Give me your best price without the trade-in, and then if I'm happy with that, I'll then we'll talk about the trade-in. But that way, I at least keep focused on uh, on what the, what the, quote, real price is. Yeah, a lot of people do that, and it's recommended by a lot of different websites out there that you do that. Ultimately, it really, unless you're prepared to buy the car without trading your other vehicle in, there's really no benefit to doing that. Um, 
you're taking away the opportunity actually for a dealership to sit there and look at the whole picture from their perception and say, hey, listen, we might be willing to lose a bit more money on this car because this is a trade that we would want. We would be able to do well on that. Yeah, but and is by it... doing it the other way, you might take away that opportunity for them to package a deal together for you that actually looks good to you in, the, in, in every aspect also. If you're willing to do that and not have your trade as part of the deal, then I think it's, it's, it's fine. I don't see any issue with that. Yeah, and I just the, for us out here on the buyer side, it's just confusing sometimes. We've got to learn two prices. Uh, sometimes it feels easier to start with one at a time, but I, I see the point. There's no question about that. But again, if you, anyone's done any type of research, there is so much information out there on new cars nowadays. It's probably the most, you know, it is definitely one of the most expensive items you're ever going to purchase next to your house. But there's also so much information out there available to the consumer that it's almost impossible nowadays, if you've done any type of research, and walk into a dealership and make a fair offer based upon what you know the dealership really pays for the car, there's not going to be too many dealerships out there that are going to say no to you. I'm curious, how much time do you spend internally? Uh, you're the sales manager. You have, you have authority that my salesperson and the next manager I spoke to, they don't have. So you have a lot more authority than they have. Uh, how much time do you spend internally trying to figure out uh, what price to offer is your quote bottom price uh, week to week and month to month? Because I assume that changes dramatically. It does and it doesn't. Honda is very, very easy to price out because every Honda in America is built the same way with the same options. So you don't have to worry about any changes or any packages being added to the cars. So it's really simple for us to do our pricing on it. The only thing I have to look at is about every month Honda comes out with any incentive programs that they might be putting on the cars. That's the only thing that's going to change the pricing on that. But on, but as we get closer to 09, or, I mean, just to take an example, when I bought that Honda Odyssey in 1999, uh, it was a very hot car, and everybody wanted one, and it was so in demand you couldn't drive one. Uh, there, almost no dealer had one on the lot that had not been sold. Most of them had been sold sight unseen. When they came in, they were already spoken for. And most buyers paid, or many, I don't know if most isn't right, but many many buyers paid a premium above list to get that car. There was none of this. There was no dealer incentive. There was no holdback. There was certainly no $500 less than that. Uh, nobody's worried about getting the, the next uh, year's allocation in. So th there is some, there are swings in demand, and, and surely your willingness to come down on price I would think would have something to do with how far away the next model year is. As it gets closer, you're more eager to get that next year's allocation. Isn't it, that isn't it, that true? It definitely has a, uh, something to do with it. But at the end of the day, I'm very much a believer in the consumer dictates the pricing to dealerships. We like to think, as a dealership, we like to think that we control the pricing. It's not true. The public demand for certain vehicles are going to, and your own supply, it's, it's probably the classic case of supply and demand. For example, right now, you're talking about the Odyssey when it first came out in 99-2000, it was remodeled. It was a huge success. There was a limited production of it, high demand. Consumers were willing to spend two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 above sticker to get the car. They didn't want to wait for it. Now you have a similar circumstance going on with the Civic Hybrid right now. It is a car because of the gas prices that people are wanting to purchase right now, 
but at most dealerships don't have any. We currently have none in stock. I've talked to several of the guys around town. They don't have any either. And all of a sudden, you know, a Civic Hybrid that we were looking at pricing out pretty similar to the Odyssey you just purchased. Now we're talking about, you know, we need to be looking at getting sticker for the car, MSRP. And consumers are putting down deposits on the next one coming in, willing to pay MSRP for it. But how do you internally, who do you talk to? How many, how do you get together? Is it a once a week meeting, once a month meeting to try to figure out uh, what you're going to be able to get for those cars? No, it's, 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 it really is demand on the cars. Um, when I look at our inventory and I see that right now we have, you know, 124 cords in there, well, it's pretty easy to understand that every dealership around town has the same supply of accords. So you can't go out there and be expecting to ask all the money on the accords right now because there's someone else out there that's going to do better than that. Um, the Accord Coupe, on the other hand, is a car that we have three in stock, and I know the incoming orders are going to give us like four or five more. And talking with other dealers around town is the same thing. So internally, I sit and tell myself I need to try to hold a bigger profit margin on the Accord Coupes than I do the Accord Sedans. And I'll get more aggressive on the pricing on the Accord Sedan where I won't do the same on the Accord Coupe right now. So it's not a weekly thing. It's not a bi-monthly or a monthly. It's more along the lines of what do I have coming in for inventory? How hot is that car right now? And is there an opportunity to get a higher-than-average profit on that car because of the demand for it. Well, let me ask the question a slightly different way. Okay. Every person who walks into your dealership has, a different, as we've talked about already, a different level of information, a different level of eagerness. Um, and a different level of perception of perception, what's going to happen. And a, a good salesperson and, a, and a, a great salesperson can read that and figure out what the likely price is that will make that customer happy and still leave a profit for you. So forget this issue about over time how, you know, how much things are going to vary. On any day, uh, there are people coming into the store who, are, uh, who differ by their, their characteristics. How do you decide how much to come down and when to say no and when to be firm? Uh, and especially you, the sales manager, the, the sales and let me make the question a little broader. Everybody in this chain has an incentive to sell the car. You're not on salary. The salesperson's not on salary, I assume. And I even assume you're you're not on salary. Now, everybody in a car dealership, believe it or not, is pretty strictly commission-based. Right. So, so you've got to be sizing up somebody, and you're not you're not there. You're in the back room, and you sometimes hear stories that dealers are videoing or, or recording conversations. How do you read the customer and make sure you're getting the right price that for your dealership? Well, the typical process that occurs is when a sales representative meets a customer and takes them out and shows them a car, comes back in and comes up to talk to me about the the deal. There's a basic couple of things I'd like to know first of all. I'd like to know has the customer had a chance to test drive the car? Um, have they sales person took some time and did a walk around of the car basically sold the features and benefits of the car and then i'd like to know is the customer prepared to do business right now if we can make him happy with the terms and conditions and then at that point also find out if all parties are present to make a decision so i need to know at that point is there a possibility of even doing business right now 
or is there something that's going to be holding us back? For example, a husband who doesn't want to do business without his wife, or sure. vice versa, a wife who wants her husband there. Uh, it might be a young kid, 18 or 19, getting ready to buy his first car, and he f- prefers that mom and dad be there to uh, help assist him. So it's almost to the point right there, I've got to either stop the process and say, okay, we're not ready to go forward here right now. Let's uh, try to set up a time where we can invite all participants back so we have that opportunity. If it's we have a go-ahead and the salesman gives me all the information that it's okay, we're going to go ahead and do business right now or try to do business, then I like always ask the salesman, has the customer give you an indication of his thought process right now? An example, somebody might say, well, I've been to two dealerships already. Well, if they've been to two dealerships and they haven't bought the car yet, obviously trying to ask MSRP from the customer is not going to be a very productive way to start the process off. MSRP You're going to have to look is, at starting the process off more around invoice. MSRP is manufacturer's suggested retail price. Exactly. The sticker. Absolutely. Now, now I went to a I went to one of your competitors, which uh, I won't name, and I looked at the exact same car. Right as you point out, what's great about Honda and not so great depending on your taste, but I like it is there's basically three models and that's it. There are very few other options other than those pinstriping mud flap things. Absolutely. But basically, there's three basic models and not a lot of separate add-ons and bells and whistles packages and et cetera. And Toyota's gone the other way. Toyota's chosen, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. They have a very, very similar car to the Honda, but they, it's a little more complex, which is great because you get more freedom of choice. It's not so great because it's harder to tell what, what the right price is. So I went to your, a Honda competitor, though, of yours in the, in the D.C. area, and I asked the price on the same car that I drove at your place. And he gave me a price that I think the sticker price was, I think, four or five above what your, quote, best price was. And uh, I said, well, can you come down from that? And he said, well, a little bit. And he came down a little bit, and I walked out, and that was that. He lost me. He could have gotten me if he had uh, been more aggressive, if he had matched your price. I hadn't had your price yet, but he didn't even get me interested. He just kind of just gave me a little small reduction off the sticker. What did he do wrong? What should he have done? He probably didn't ask enough qualifying questions to really determine where in the buy-in process you were. For example, um, have you done any type of research on the vehicle yet? Have you been to another dealership and had an opportunity to test drive the car yet? Um, what's your uh, buy-in time right now? Where are you? What are you thinking? What are you trying to accomplish by coming here today? Is it just to look at the vehicle? Is it something that if I can you know, make a deal that looks good to you and you like that we are prepared to do business right now? You asked a very open-ended sales question that I would sit there and say, well, somebody that wanted to buy a car, and you either had a sales consultant who was fearful of addressing you any more aggressively, as you would put it, for fear of you walking out, which is what you did anyway, or you had a salesperson who made a decision that you were not a buyer, which is the worst thing that anybody can do with a potential customer. Yeah, I, I had been at the same dealership uh, a couple weeks before. I had a different salesperson. Uh, ended up talking to, the, I think, the equivalent person uh, there that you are, the, the sales manager. He was extremely um, low-key, which I really liked, just like as you are. Uh, you weren't slick or trying to wow me with some kind of, a fake talk, and he he just said, you know, uh, we'll come, we'll give you a good price. I just find it interesting, and I thought, well, you'll probably buy it from him. He seems like a good guy, 
And yet when I got on the internet and looked at your price, it, it was so much more attractive. I never went back to him as it turned out. But his relaxed manner, which I liked, uh, he never got close to telling me what a good price was. And so I never, he never got in the, in the running. It seems like a, did he misread me? Uh, it's, it's probably a little bit of a lot of combination of things. First of all, he probably did misread you. Um, and again, the car business has just a stigmata to it. You know, the salesman that can sell ice cube to Eskimos, the, the mouth of the South, the gift of gab. Everybody's so concerned with that persona that's been out there or that stereotype that it's almost went to the exact opposite now where sales consultants and sales managers are going bending over backwards to try to be nice to customers, showing them that they're serious about earning their business. And what happens is is everyone misses the real core of what's happening is you still have a customer that walks in and is – at some point in the process of purchasing a car, you don't walk into a car dealership if you haven't been thinking about getting a new car or actively getting a new car. So when you walk into the dealership and you meet me, I want to be aggressive with you. I don't want to be aggressive to the point where I've offended you, but at the same time, I want to make it clear that my job here is to try to earn your business. And to do that, it might be a a straightforward case of just saying, let me get you a really good price, but I've got to ask you up front if I can do that, if I can give you a deal that's going to make you smile, if I'm going to give you a deal that's going to make you feel good, are you prepared to do business right now? And without asking that question, you're kind of leaving it open for the consumer just to sit there and say, okay, thanks, because... No, no one wants to spend twenty to $30,000 walking into a store. Mm-hmm. It is something they want to think about. Your job as, a, as representing the dealership is to take that gentleman and invest your time with you. It's the biggest thing I think a salesman or a, even a sales manager has to offer a customer is their willingness to invest time. Because the product is the same everywhere, the cars are the same, yeah, the finances are the same. <laughs> the only thing different from dealership to dealership is the individual and their willingness and their desire to invest the amount of time necessary maybe to get you over your own perception of what you wanted walking into the dealership. Well, what I'm thinking about, which I think is interesting, I, I didn't – I told you the truth. I told you what I researched, and I told you what was wrong with my trade-in. Um, you didn't didn't ask for – I told you what I, CarMax had offered, which was 3000 You did not – asked to see proof of that. Um, obviously, people lie. Uh, you have more information than I do about the used car market, so you know whether my car is really worth 3000 or closer to five, and you can test drive it and pretty much know what's wrong with it. Um, but obviously, people buyers lie uh, to deceive salespeople. I'm curious how you train or adjust your salespeople, interact with your salespeople to try to get an accurate perception of of the of the buyer, and then how often you end up coming out on the floor as you did with me to try to make things better. Well, first of all, let me. With you, it was more of a judgment call, and a lot of what we do is judgment calls. Talking with you, you came across as a very intelligent individual who was pretty much near the end of their ropes on the whole process of yep. getting a car. And talking to you in that brief short of time, I felt that. There was a good chance if I tried to attack anything you were saying, it was going to lead to you walking out and maybe not even getting a Honda at all and getting another product completely because of your frustration level. 
was very apparent. In most cases, when you're dealing with anyone, um, people come in with perceptions all the time, whether it's a perception on the price, a perception on the experience that they think is going to happen, an expectation of what their trade level is going to be. Everyone comes in there with some kind of perception. I believe the salesman's ability to empathize with a customer but not sympathize and understand where the customer is coming from is going to go a long way toward them understanding what the customer wants and then seeing if they can present something to them that's going to be close to what they want or at least give them the opportunity to alter their thinking or change their perception on what they thought was going to happen into something that is going to be beneficial to both parties. So how often do you get involved rather than just take your salesperson's um, estimate? I'd probably say 30 40% of the time. Uh-huh. I would be considered you know, the quote-unquote closer coming in behind to get people who come across saying that they're just here shopping, they're not going to do anything today, that they just want to get some information. And in most cases... I'm coming to talk to people who've made a a very vocal point of saying I'm not ready to do anything right now. And my job is to come in there and kind of explore the possibility of would they open up their mind to doing something if we could do whatever. Do you monitor your sales representatives for their obviously if somebody is really a bad salesperson, you find that out and they find it out. They don't make any money. Uh, they don't make any of that commission, and they, they don't do very well, and they, they eventually, I assume, quit or you fire them. Uh, but there are probably, I assume, big differences between salespeople in terms of their skill and reading customers and trying to get a little more money or, or have to give a little more money. Uh, how do you track that, and um, or does it just work itself out in the commission differences? Now, um, first of all, the average commission that a salesman makes, I mean, across the board, your good ones and your less than average ones, is about $350 per car. So it becomes more of a volume uh, process for the sales consultants. We monitor how many customers they talk to. We monitor closing ratios of, you know, talking to 20 people and there's, you know, two or three are buying. We monitor their ability to follow up with customers before and after the sale. Um, we look at the whole picture of what a sales consultant is, is is presenting themselves to the consumers. And you can have a top sales consultant who sells lots of vehicles but does very poor follow-up, and it is just as bad as having a poor salesman not selling very many cars because they're still destroying your customer base right there with poor follow-up after the sale. People don't want to spend $20,000, $25,000 and then feel like they've been forgotten about. It is something that you want your sales consultant calling you. Is there everything okay with the car? Is there anything else I can do for you? Did you have all your questions answered? Um, uh, just to digress for a minute, I find it interesting. I have a Honda Accord is my car. My wife drives the Odyssey most of the time. Uh, it's interesting that the dealer who sold me that Accord, I've never heard from again since I bought it. Uh, I don't feel unloved. I just think it's interesting that they don't try to sell me a newer one. Uh, no, but at the same time, I bet when you're deciding on which car to get another vehicle from, that that dealership is probably not on top of your list. It's not. It's not on the bottom. It's just interesting that they don't you know, stay in touch and say, how's the car working out? Are you thinking ready to trade up? Now, part of it, I assume, is people don't want to be bothered. But you know, an email now and then that the new model is out and they have a special financing, it's just interesting that doesn't happen very often in, in my experience. Maybe you guys do it. 
No, it's, it, it's something. The turnover in the car business is probably second worst or worse than the restaurant business. You get a lot of individuals coming in here that are transient in from between jobs or looking for something in their career field. And you're constantly getting this turnover of new sales consultants. So if someone sells you a car today and three months from now they're no longer here, it's, it's a very poor effort on the dealership to take that customer and give them to somebody who is going to pick them up and take care of them. Whether it's something simple as, I found that one of the easiest things you can do is when you sell somebody a car, find out their birthdays from the people associated with it, and then just send them a little thank you card on their birthday. Yeah, that's, you know? a, that's an easy one. Yeah, just a little follow-up, which is sales 101. You're not talking yeah, about anything not... <laughs> amazing. You're talking about what everyone likes to do. When you walk into a dealership, and if you've been there before to get your car serviced, you don't want people to sit there and say, oh, by the way, what's your name? You want people to say, hey, Mr. Russell, how are you today? How may I help you? Sure. You, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling from people who actually take the time to find out about you and make you feel more than just somebody whose money they're after. And it's not just in the car business. It's true of any yeah, sales sure. organization. Well, but let's talk about, I'm curious, what you said a Basically, a, a salesperson makes three hundred fifty bucks per car. They might make—I assume they may make a little bit more, a little bit less. But you, as you say, volume is driving the, their annual compensation. What, what does a great salesperson make in your business, uh, and what top, does a mediocre one make? Sure, I'd say your average salesperson or mediocre salesperson is making somewhere between twenty and thirty-five thousand a year, and your top sales consultants are probably in six figures. And do they stay in that, or do they move up? No, that's. Um, you either, at that point, decide you like that level of income you're making. I mean, you know, you're in six figures. You're in the top, what, 10% in the country as far as income? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, you feel very comfortable with that one. And if you're if you're one of these individuals who said, I want to make this a career, I want to make this, you know, more than just a temporary job, then you start getting into referrals, giving people family members, uh kids growing up, you know, that now are ready for their first car. You take it to a level where it becomes a business for you, really, and you start treating it like a business. You're a sales manager. What did you do before that? Um, had a small air duct cleaning company, cleaning up people's air ducts in their homes. So you were, not a, you were not on the floor? No, before I became a sales manager, I actually sold cars for six months first. Uh, intending to be the sales manager? No, nope. for me, it was like, I, I would say like a lot of people, I took it as a transient job. Uh, I took it saying, you know, let me try this for a little bit. It was funny because growing up, one of the, two of the things I said I'd never do is sell cars or sell insurance. And, you know, I got into the car business as just more of a putting my toe in the water and see how it feels. And I remember my first day going on, the, it was a Saturday, going out into the sales floor and thinking, you know, this is going to be real easy. I'm going to walk out, I'm going to sell a car right away. There was myself and five other people that started the same day I did. Mm. Five of them sold a car, and I didn't. I went home that night and just said, you know what, I'm going to quit. It's exactly what I thought it was. I'm not interested in it. What happened? um, I haven't quit anything else in life. Got up the next morning. (laughs) Got up the next morning, went back in there, and put another 12-hour day in there and didn't sell anything, and went home and was frustrated again, and uh, went back. And it was two days later before I bought my first, uh, sold my first car, I remember the customer completely because every Christmas after that, they always bought me a bottle of wine for Christmas and even a 
they adopted a young little girl from um, Africa, and they when they came back from Africa, one of the first places they stopped by was to see me and show me their daughter. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. So, were you after that six months? Were you pretty good at it? It took me about four months to really understand the whole process, um, what my job really was. Uh, too many too many people think it's all about again pleasing the customer, and don't get me wrong, that's very important. But a lot of times, the consumers need a little push to get them going in the right direction. Again, it's such a large purchase. No one wants to, you know, just come in and say, hey, I'm ready to buy a car, you know, take my money. So it took me about four months to really find out, you know, how to really interact with customers in such a way that they felt that I cared about what was going on, but at the same time was doing my best to make myself personally in the dealership the most money available. So after that six months, how did you get to be a sales manager? It was, we have a, uh, a traditional Saturday meeting I call a huddle, where before we start Saturday off, which is the biggest day in the car business, and we have a meeting every Saturday, just kind of lay out the floor plan for the day, what we want to do, what we want to accomplish. And it was in a meeting that the uh, general sales manager was going around the room and just talking. He said, I'd like to introduce you to our new sales manager, and he said my name, and kind of surprised me because no one had talked to me about it. And, a little weird. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, well, it's 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 the car business. It's a very camaraderie, very close knit of people. I mean, I'll work eighty, ninety hours a week, and I'll spend fifty to sixty hours a week with some of these people here, probably more than their own spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends sure. will see them. So you build a community really fast of, you know, what's going on in your life and interacting with people. So. Him announcing me in a meeting like that was uh, actually par for the course in, in the whole scheme of things. Why, why did – you must have been pretty good at it. Um, I had a big, a big desire to be successful, and I think that conveys itself into being successful. There's no other way of saying it. I came in every day with a mentality of this, that when I talked to a customer, I wanted to sell every customer that I talked to. So without going into the, the details – because it's personal. How is your compensation or a salesman or general compensation set in terms of commission and, and sales volume? What proportion it's, it's, is commission versus fixed? It's 100% commission. 100%? Wow. 100% commission. I get paid so, off of the entire store's front and back-end profit. So if you sell nothing, literally, that month, just because it's a really bad month, you take home nothing? I would take home nothing. Hmm. It's interesting. That now, focuses your I get, mind. I get paid off of every salesperson and their performance. So I'm not personally myself selling anything. I'm going back, you know, talking to customers after the fact. I'm cleaning up problems that exist. For example, like yourself, I would describe as a problem waiting to happen. Yeah. Um, I deal more with those issues, but I get paid upon the performance of the entire store. Front end, which is the amount of profit being built on the cars, and then profit on the back end, which is the financing. So uh, let's talk about the, the profit thing again, because you seem to, th from your early remarks, you quote, took a loss on my car. Uh, did you not make, did you personally, I mean, my salesperson gets his 350 bucks. No, your salesperson on that deal would make what's called a flat or a mini. Um, most dealerships have a pay compensation that pays a salesman a minimum regardless of what he sells the car for. Okay. In that case, it was $100. Okay. 
So he didn't do as well because and that, is that because I got a better price than somebody who walked in off the street and paid exactly, sticker? Okay. Exactly. And he knew that, presumably. Yeah. I mean, he knew that, and you can sit there and say, I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth. He knew that, so he didn't invest as much time as he should have with you, or he knew that and he gave you everything he could regardless. It's, 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 um, it's a very unusual thing. You can spend six hours with a customer sure. and make $100 doing it. Right, or you spend 10 minutes and make 350 or you could make a thousand on a car. Yeah. So what did you, what did you make off of a deal like mine, where the salesperson gets a mini? I would make literally point oh one percent of the total profit for the store. Is that like okay? So that's the equivalent of a mini. So when you take a, but what I'm curious about is that when you take a, I just blithely said it's like a mini. I have no idea what that number is. Point oh one times the profit on the store. But my question is this. If in a case like mine, where you came down that extra five hundred off of invoice after the manufacturer incentive, after the deal, after the manufacturer holdback, were you personally taking an investment in an 09 car, or did you still make something? No, I still make something. Again, Is my, that pay, my, my pay is commission based and volume based. The more cars we sell, the bigger my percentage of the overall profit is. Okay. So, so, so you do have an incentive just to sell cars. I do have an incentive to sell cars every single day. At the same time, I look at my main responsibility is actually to the salesman. Um, it's my job. If a happen. salesman spends time with a customer, it's my job to find a way to make that deal happen because otherwise the salesman time has been for naught. He's not going to make nothing. After a salesman spends two to three hours with you, I feel I owe it to that salesman to find a way to make that deal, even if it means taking a loss for the dealership. Yeah, because of course, you don't just want to make buyers happy. You do have to keep your sales force. You don't want that. That turnover is a nightmare for you. You've got to train a new person. They may may not turn out to be any good. Exactly. So So, keeping the sales force happy is a very big part of putting together a successful dealership that's going to want its consultants to take care of the customers. So my salesperson did an excellent job, uh, was very anxious when he saw how upset I was, and he basically uh, was very apologetic that he, that he hadn't told me about all the full set of the prices, and I told him I wasn't mad at him because obviously he didn't do that on his own. I was mad at you. And I said to you, Steve, at the time, I said, you lied to me. You, you, I called another dealer, got his, quote, best price, and when I said, "Does it include everything?" He said, "Well, no, it doesn't. It includes it doesn't include the destination charge and the and these options." And your salesperson said, "Well, this is the best price. All the only thing extra is tags and tags and and taxes." And when I got in and find out that he hadn't told me everything, I went kind of. I got kind of upset. I was going to say I went ballistic. That's, that's I don't think you went ballistic. I didn't. I I just got a little you got bit very frustrated. I got very frustrated, and 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 you said, "I asked you. I said, why did you do that to me?'" You had a very interesting answer. What was it? Oh, well, I don't you know what answer I would have given at the time. You told me that. But I mean, the reality of it. <laughs> the reality of it is, um, we can't sell a customer a car at home or in their office. We need you to come to the dealership. Now, you've been using words like deceived and lie. I I, I tend to stay away from those words because they they have negative connotations. It's, with it's them, a regardless. gray. I'll admit it's a gray area. It is something that 
when I got done working with you and you left in your vehicle, was I able to? Would I be able to look at the eye and say, you know, Mr. Roberts, you got a heck of a deal? And the answer is yes. Did I have to get you there under, as you would say, a very gray area? Yes, it, yes, we did. And there's no question about that. Should that be something you feel bad about? Again, it's perception. Uh, I can tell you that. Again, you can take that deal to any dealership, and you're going to find out you're pretty much near the rock bottom right now. No one is going to do much better than that. And so you can walk away feeling like you got a good deal. Did it make me? Did it make me the bad, evil car guy by bringing you in under those pretenses? I guess we could argue both sides of the coin. I would sit there and say, you know, my intention was to give you a great deal and get you in, and to get you in, I needed an opportunity to do that. If I would have said it's plus 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 this, would you have taken the time to come in here, or would you be continued calling around? Yeah, it's a it's a coin toss. It's 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 a tough thing, and it's not something that. You know, I like doing with anyone. It's something that I've got to play both sides of the coin and get the customer in here in such a way that they don't feel offended by it, and that gives us an opportunity to earn their business. Well, let me, we're almost out of time. Let me, let me get to an economist perspective on this and then sure. get, give, get your reaction. I, as an economist, when I look at the gap between the sticker price and the haggled negotiated price – uh, we, we talked earlier that one of the reasons there's a gap between those two is that some customers are better informed. And I want to give two other reasons for that and get your reaction to them. One is uh, some buyers come in, see the sticker price, get some of it knocked off, and feel great because they, quote, got a great deal. So, you know, I'm complaining in this beginning of this podcast about how stressful buying a new car is. Uh, to some extent, I suppose ignorance is bliss. If you really don't know much about the car market or particular models, car market at the time, you, you can come in, uh, pay a price a little below in, a, a little below sticker, uh, and more than perhaps I paid, and feel like you got a great deal because you paid less than sticker, and you don't realize that there was more play. Uh, the second argument would be, when I've always asked, you know, the real fundamental question here that we've been uh, sort of playing, talking around in different ways is, you know, why are cars sold differently than, than shirts? You know, I walk into um, a department store, there's a price for a shirt. I, walk, I go on Land's End, there's a price for the shirt. The shirts might not be the same shirt, but everybody pays the, the same price ultimately. I walk into a grocery store, price is fixed, there's no negotiation. The only things that are negotiated in our world here in the United States typically, there's some areas, but in general, things that are really negotiated dramatically are, are cars and houses. And one the standard economist argument for that would be, you know, the question then is, you know, why doesn't comp the question I started with, why doesn't competition among dealers just force the price down to the lowest price? And, you know, one answer, and then just have that be the sticker price. Saturn did try that, at least they allegedly tried it. I have no idea if they really kept that. But they, they were going to be a new way of selling cars, and I don't think they've done particularly well. But the puzzle for an economist is why isn't that more widespread? And one answer is, now customers get exploited. And that's just the reason it's not widespread is that there's just not enough competition. And this allows customers to pay a, uh, a premium. They don't realize it and dealers can, can take advantage of them. As an economist, I don't really like that answer. I don't think you do either. And my, my other answer would be, so the first answer is this behavioral answer that people are, they like a good deal. So you set the sticker price high and then you give them a bargain. 
The second answer, which I find more compelling and but still could be wrong, is that, well, it's very unclear in any one time what the right price for the car is. You don't even know it. Uh, you're not quite sure what the market conditions are. Uh, you're not sure what the value of having the 09s is going to be. You're not sure how in high demand these cars are. And as a result, if you set a single price, and it really was truly a no-haggle, totally transparent price, no hidden charges, no extras, just a flat single price, that that price would have to be higher than the price that some people currently are able to get because of the cushion that that those not fully informed people are paying. And it's as we move to a world with more information, the price will be driven down closer and closer to what is truly a no-haggle price. And the the margins, the variance, the differences between customers will get smaller and smaller in terms of what they pay for the same car. What, what's your reaction to that? I believe the answer really is more simplistic than anything that can be graphed out on a uh, XY uh, axis. I believe it's this simple. I believe we as adults have been grown up conditioned to sit there and say, I remember my dad taking me to a car dealership. Watch how your dad does this. We are taught to want to negotiate cars. We are taught that it is a good thing. We are taught that a good negotiator will give you, will save you money. And it's a, something prideful everyone takes that they want to walk into a car dealership and say, I got the best deal. It's interesting. There have been, in the last several years, there have been several attempts by different car dealers around town, around the D.C., Baltimore metropolitan area, to do exactly that, to have one pricing available on their windows, not negotiable. You just come in and you pay that price. In every case, what happened is it failed miserably because, A, people would come, they'd see that price that was on that window, and then they would take that price and go to another dealership and say, can you beat this? Because behaviorally, our We've been conditioned to sit there and say, we want to negotiate to get the best price. I want to be known as the one person that if you want to go buy a car, you need to take Steve along with you because he'll get you the best price. And we're conditioned to do that from a very early age in our buying process, and we're not conditioned to do it on anything else. You're not told when you walk into a grocery store that, hey, you need to negotiate that gallon of milk. But yet in other parts of the country, the markets are where if you went in there and paid anything, what the the guy behind the counter was saying, you would be looked as foolish. You didn't you know negotiate parts, very well. In other parts of the world, you mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You said the country. And here, we are taught you don't negotiate these things. You go and pay what the price says. You can shop around now and make sure that that flat screen TV you're getting from Best Buy is a better price in Circuit City. But at the same time, we're told you can't negotiate it. You can but a yet, little bit. You know, they, some, sure. They've tried to do this if you find a better price. But you're right. You can't negotiate it. But you're taught from an early age that car dealerships can be negotiated with. So even though it's been tried where several people have actually tried to put flat prices on their car, customers still came in and wanted to negotiate. Right. But the one one reason they did is because maybe those prices weren't as low as they could get elsewhere. I mean, if I went into a dealer, let's say you took this approach and you put a single no-haggle price on the car, and I went and took that price to another dealer and said, can you beat this? Well, if you'd set the price low, they wouldn't be able to. They, they might be able to match it, but they wouldn't be able to beat it. And I come back to my earlier question as to why that doesn't happen as a way for you to generate tremendous volume. You just would be the lowest price dealer in, in D.C. Everyone would know it. 
uh, and everyone would understand that that's where you go for a low price, and that reputation would be extremely valuable to you. Armax has that reputation right now. They do. That's you correct. You agree with me? Yeah, I agree. Do you know that in a, there was a survey done, it was like about well, 10 months ago, and they actually surveyed people who bought a car from CarMax, and it was something like, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like 38 to 45% of the people still walked in there and still asked if they could negotiate the price on the car. And Well, I agree with you that it is a cultural norm that we have. I find it interesting that it persists. Um, because, I find it very interesting that it persists. It, I, mean, I agree with you that, for example, that the kids look to their parents for negotiation. I mean, I, after I bought my car from you, I sat down with my kids and I gave them the whole story because I wanted them to understand uh, what had happened and, and where I had either made a mistake or where I had done okay and to give them that life lesson because they weren't with me. But I wanted them to, to understand that. So let's pretend – Let's pretend your story and mine had a different beginning uh, and ending than it had. Let's say I'd walked in and I had um, done my homework as I did, and this issue of extras didn't come up, and I felt just great because I'd knocked three thousand or whatever it was off what I'd been offered at that dealer who didn't do a very good job with me. And I came home and I bragged to my kids and said, ah, "Your dad did great today. I knocked. I saved us three thousand bucks because I'm a great negotiator." And I understand that. People have that pride of being savvy. But there's the flip side. The flip side is I think a lot of, uh, of dads and moms go home and say, I just had a, you know, the experience from hell trying to buy a new car, and, and I have no idea whether I got a good deal or not. And that feeling is depressing. Horrible. So it's surprising to me. I'm not, there's no answer here, but I find it surprising that that, that uh, part of it hasn't come to dominate the cultural norm. Is a fascinating topic that is full of psychological viewpoints and perceptions, and I think at the end of the day, it really boils down to, I call it a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of people when they enter a car dealership. If you walk in expecting that you're going to have one of the worst experiences, I believe you're going to walk out having one of the worst experiences, whether you buy a car or don't buy a car. If you walk into it with a proper attitude and you've done some research, I think buying a car is probably easier now than it ever has been, and you can assure yourself of getting a very good deal. Well, it's better than it used to be. There's no doubt about that. No question. I'd say part of it. I mean, I I met, let's see, just quick count, one, two, three, four, five salespeople in my Toyota Honda circle. I did not look at a Grand Caravan, a friend of mine. I thought about it. I, I like the car uh, when I drive it. I've rented a few, uh, but a friend of mine had driven it and said it, it didn't encourage me. So, but I, I talked to five salespeople. Of those five, uh, two or three were really superb, and two were just awful, at least for me. Uh, obviously, some salespeople were, were better for other people than others just in terms of personality, et cetera. But, but three gave me a good feeling, uh, or two, and the other ones were not not so good. And when I went back to the one of the dealers I talked to to talk to my salesperson, which I do out of loyalty, even if I don't like them, because I know they get a commission and they've invested sure. time in me. And I don't know whether everybody does that, but that's just the way I, I do it. Um, she'd been fired, <laughs> uh, she or quit. She I didn't think she was very good, but she was gone. Um, so I think part of the part of probably the challenge of your business is given that turnover. Uh, the average first encounter you have with a salesperson is not always as pleasant and uh, and as effective as you might like. 
So, um, in closing, uh, you want everybody knows horror stories about dealers uh, that they you know do tricky things to people supposedly sometimes true. What are some of the tricky things that buyers do that drive you crazy? I, I don't know we, so much tricks that they're used. I mean, tricks, again, is one of those words that just have a negative connotation with it. I think customers come in and they, the ones that shop around, and when I say shop around, I mean go from one dealer and go to another dealer, they have a tendency to sit there and say, I was told blah, blah, this price from the other dealer. And... Again, they lie it, sometimes, I assume. I don't think it's so much lying because I, I don't think anyone on, and there's a fair, very few people, but for the most part, people take what they hear and only, only hear what they want to hear out of it. If I'm talking to you and you're coming in there and you say, give me your best price, and I say, you know, the best I could really do for you is, is 18000 and you walk out and go to the next dealership, and you sit there and say, well, they told me, my last place told me they were going to do 18000 on the road. Is that what I said, or is that what you heard? What does on the road mean? All your taxes and tags oh, and everything included. Oh, yeah, full. Uh-huh. You know, that's not what I said. You know, you asked me what the best price I could sell you the car for, and I gave you my what I felt was the best price. If you take that and you add anything to it and go to the next dealer and say, well, I've got somebody willing to sell me the car for 18000 on the road, I think you're saying that I don't think you're being malicious in what you're saying. You just asked a question to you. Your perception was, well, I just want one price that includes everything. My perception is you asked me for a price what I'd sell the car for. The taxes and tags and those are all those things associated with it. Those are not something I make anything on. That has to actually go to the state of Maryland. So my selling price might be different than what you're sure. asking. But on, for example, something like a trade-in. I think I filled out a little form and he asked me, you know, was anything wrong with the car? And I dutifully told the truth because I feel that's the right thing to do. I told you it, it, the air conditioning pump was broken and I told you that it needed brake pads and uh, the rear engine mount was broken. And, you know, there were a few things wrong with it that cost a lot of money to fix. Uh, I assume not everybody writes on everything that's wrong with the car. No, one of my favorite one of my favorites is the customer who says that their car has never been in an accident. We all do the same thing. We all, first of all, check car facts to make sure that there's no reported accidents on the car. And then we also take a little, it's a little device that you can run along the paint of a car and it'll tell you if the car has been repainted anywhere. If the car has been repainted, there's a good chance that the car has been in some kind of accident where there was damage that was extensive enough that it needed a paint job done on it. Yeah. Well, and that, but it, you can, it, so if you're going to try any of those things, again, it's not going to benefit anything. It's just going to start the relationship off on a negative note where the dealership now is going to feel like you're misleading them. And then they're going to turn around and say something, and then you're going to feel defensive about it. And then it's just going to be a very tough negotiating session at that point. And it's not going to be really something that anyone's going to feel comfortable with, even if you buy a car with, because you're going to still feel like you had to go through a grind to get to that point. Let me close with a question about leasing. Sure. I've never leased a car. Um, I tend to keep my cars five to ten years, and I my general feeling is that leasing is a better idea for a short period of time rather than a longer period of time. But one of the things I find frustrating about leasing is that I have trouble figuring out, again, whether I'm getting a good deal or not. Um, so I'm just more comfortable knowing what the price is, at least what I paid for the car. I, 
how is the leasing option working in terms of these negotiation negotiation issues, and uh, what are your thoughts on that? Leasing nowadays with all the disclosures required on it is no different than buying a car. Uh, if you negotiate at a price like you did, whether you decide to finance that car on a conventional loan or you decide to lease it, it's still the it's still the same number being worked with. Uh, there's no difference. The only thing I can say about a lease that I find very very good for a lot of customers is at the end of the three or four year period of lease, you actually have options, and those options are one: if you decided you want to get a new car, you go turn the car in at any dealership and go pick out another car from there or go to even another manufacturer. You also have a option of refinancing the car. Uh, it's your car. You've already paid tax and tags on it. So whatever the residual amount is, you just go refinance until the car is yours. Now, you would your comment about, you know, I keep my car for a long time, so leasing wouldn't be a good a- avenue for me. I would sit there and say, on a conventional buy, when you do a loan uh, from a bank, you're not paying your first payment on an average due for 45 days. For 45 days, you have a 100% principal, and there's interest on that 100% principal. On a lease, you're paying your interest one month in advance. So automatically, you'd be paying less per dollar on a lease than the same buy because you're paying your interest up front instead of behind like on a conventional loan. And with the option of buying the car at the end of the lease term or refinancing it, you're not doing anything other than carrying a lower car note right now with the option of at the end of that period of either refinancing it, turning it in, and get a new car at that point. So what proportion of your uh, cars going off the lot are lease versus buy? Probably 12 to 15%. So it's low. Do you it want... is low. Again, because a lot of people don't understand the whole leasing yeah, idea. It's complicated. It's more complicated. So I think it's part of the it challenge. It can be more complicated. Um, but like I said, nowadays with the total disclosure required, you know what you're buying the car for. Eight, nine, year, ten years ago, when you did leases, the lease was with the bank. You weren't always disclosed the selling price of it. You were just told, hey, your payment's $400, and hey, that's good. That's what I wanted, not realizing you just paid $30,000 for a $20,000 car. Yeah. And nowadays, that disclosure is the same as if you're buying a car. There's full disclosure on everything, so you have an option to sit there and look at everything. The only thing different is leases have what's called a money factor instead of an APR. And I can sit there and say, you know, if I told you, you know, I'm going to charge you 10% interest, well, that's going to be like high to you. If I sit there and tell you I'm going to charge you uh, a 6, uh, 6% money factor, that might not seem like a bad thing to you, not realizing that equates to about a 12 or 13% interest rate. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem. I think, you know, I've got a PhD in economics, and I find the I find the comparison a little bit confusing. That's not real a good simple, sign. Real simple formula for anybody out there that wants to uh, – Convert their money factor over to an interest rate. Take your money factor, multiply it by 2400 That will tell you your interest rate. Hmm. So the next time you're looking at a lease and you ask your business manager, what's my money factor, take it and multiply it by 2400 If you like the number, great. If you don't, just sit there and tell them. Interesting. Well, Steve, I appreciate your honesty and um, uh, particularly appreciate the premium on my car <laughs> of getting a um, – a podcast out of it, and I'm sure our listeners will have some interesting responses. Uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. My guest has been Steve Cole, sales manager of Orisman Honda of Laurel. See you next week. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.